Well, good morning. If uh, we haven't had a chance to be properly introduced, my name is Mike, and I am one of the pastors on staff here. Um, so glad that you can be with us this morning. Um, what we've been doing as we've been going through this series on Lamentations is we have been interviewing people uh, who are going through a very difficult season or have gone through a very difficult season in life. And so what I want to do is invite up my friend Bill Bruski, who is uh, one of the leaders in a uh, Christian recovery movement that meets here on Wednesday nights called Celebrate Recovery. Um, they meet here at 630. And, and Celebrate Recovery is for anybody who has a hurt, habit, or hang-up. And I always like to add a fourth H to that, which hurt, habit, and hang-up sounds a lot like humanity. So if you're a human being, you're welcome at Celebrate Recovery. And so, Bill, yes, glad, to, glad to have you here with us. Thank um, you. So you're one of the leaders at Celebrate Recovery. Um, why don't you give us the short story of uh, how you came to be in this ministry and, uh, you know, what exactly you're in recovery from. That's how he highlights that short part. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, hi, good to be here. Uh, my name is Bill. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I was um, born and raised in the Green Bay area about an hour and a half north of here. I was raised on a dairy farm. Um, mom and dad were very solid in their faith. And, um, you know, as the youngest of five kids, I had a really good home. Um, you know, mom and dad stayed married through and through. They were married for 64 years until death parted them. So I praise God for that. You know, I have real, no real reason why I would be, uh, have a need for recovery. Um, but my selfishness, my sin, uh, got me to that point where I did need that. Um, basically, at a very young age, at 16 years old, I started to be sexually active, very active. And it just spiraled from there for the rest of my life. Um, after high school, I joined the Air Force, and I went and served for Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And then upon return from that, I uh, went home and grabbed my high school sweetheart, and we got married. We moved to South Dakota. We got our first house. And... Um, you know, this is the early 90s, so the, the bringing in of the World Wide Web, right? You've got mail and I've got porn. So it just kind of spiraled downhill from there. Um, after a tour in Okinawa, Japan, we decided we wanted to come back to Wisconsin and be closer to our home and our families. The only way to do that in the Air Force was to become a recruiter. So uh, you can imagine then I took my sexual deviancy and I used it to my selfish advantage and I started having sex with the female applicants. Of course, we know most of those applicants are high school girls. So um, ultimately I was found out. The, I was discharged from the Air Force um, in 1999. The marriage hung on by a thread but barely and then only that until we divorced in 2003. So, um, even during the divorce, when the marriage was in the tank, I decided, you know, I can't be alone. I needed acceptance. That's what I was using sex for, was acceptance. Uh, so I was already online looking for my next girlfriend, and, and, and I found her before I was even divorced. I had an ex-girlfriend, mm -hmm. and, you know, it was then that her teenage son inspired us to start church shopping. So we started with Community Church, and in 2004 we started going there, 
and in 2005, I can really say that's when I started calling myself a Christian. Wow. Very cool. So at that point, you're beginning to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that life just got better after that point, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so <laughs> you would think, you know, that's the way it should go. We want it to go that way, but that's not the case, you know. So I was following Christ. I had a head knowledge of Christ, but I couldn't get it in my heart. I honestly was all, you know, by the book trying to raise stepchildren and, and my daughter and, you know, a, a wife and things like that. And it was all in my head, and I couldn't find grace in my heart. I couldn't be a graceful husband or a graceful father. So that marriage was pretty much doomed from the start. Um, I had a, a sit-down, you know, uh, you know, I never cheated on my second wife, right? But the Bible says you did because you've lusted in your heart. See, I didn't kick the porn habit. I just didn't have an affair, but still looking at porn. Um, I spoke with our pastor then, uh, Pastor Doug Jared, and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Bill, I don't know that we can save your marriage at this point, but we can save you. And he meant not save as far as salvation, but save me from my addiction to pornography. And uh, so we had a serious sit-down talk about a place called Pure Life Ministries, which is in Kentucky. It's a live-in residential program. I spent seven months there. It's for Christian men with sexual addictions. And that's where Jesus was made real to me for the first time ever. Um, I did get a second chance then with my wife, um, but in, even that was short-lived. Uh, I went through the, the Quest program, uh, Quest for Authentic Manhood. I learned how to be an intentional husband and father, um, but it wasn't enough. See, in 2013, I got a call from a detective in the Washington County Sheriff's Department, and he asked me to come in. I had a few questions for me about an investigation they were conducting. So I voluntarily went in, thinking I could help. And sure enough, it was an investigation I knew a whole lot about. It was my history um, as a recruiter. They were questioning my actions back in 98. So the short story of this is um, I was ultimately charged and convicted of sexual assault of a minor. So from that, I spent a year and a half in jail. Um, and then in probation and things like that, I couldn't live where my house was because of the proximity to the park. Mm. So I lost my house. Ultimately, I lost my wife. I lost some relationship with my daughter because of all the turmoil and crap that I brought into that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. what was that experience like, Those that year and a half in jail? What did God teach you during that time? You know... Um, I knew God's hand was in this all along. Uh, from the, when I started following Christ, I knew you know, very shortly then that I wanted to be intentional for Christ as well as you know, the father and the husband thing. But I had garbage to take care of, right? And so this, this long time span between uh, the time that I committed these crimes and the date of conviction was all the hand of God. It allowed me to mature in Christ. It allowed me to accept responsibility for my actions mm. rather than blame anyone else for it. Mm. Um, you know, I had peace knowing that God was in this. This is that peace that surpasses all understanding when you're convicted of a felon and you're still at peace with that. That's kind of where I was. Mm. Wow. So where are you at today? So I understand. You know, I accept that I'm not perfect. On this side of heaven, I won't be. Um, but God has forgiven me. He's blessed me. He's redeemed me. Um, he has restored relationships 
He's restored the relationship first uh, between me and him. I understand what he's done for me and how he loves me. And he's restoring relationships around me. I now spend time with my 21-year-old daughter. I spend time with my 10-year-old son. I'm very intentional to teach him the things that I learned um, about how to respect people, to try new things, but respect people. Um, And so I am in the Celebrate Recovery Ministry. I'm a leader now, and I I use that to share my story, share God's redemptive power. You know, he's all about restoring us to him and restoring relationships with each other. That's great. Praise God. We're praying for more redemptive chapters to be written in your story. Bill. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. That takes a lot of courage to get up here and kind of talk about the junk in your life. So, weep with me. The lost language of lament. Weep with me. Now, why would we do a thing like that? <laughs> why would we talk about things like sadness and, and pain and suffering and, and just stuff like that? I mean, don't, don't you get, don't, you're like, Mike, don't you know spring is in the air? I mean, were you outside yesterday? It was 55 degrees and sunny outside, you know? It's like some of you are like, I think the NCAA tournament is going on right now. Why are we talking about lamentations? I mean, like... Well, if you picked either Marquette or Wisconsin, you've got some lamentations. You, could, you probably are doing some weeping right now, okay? But, uh, but besides that, why would, why would we talk about weep with me? It was late October in 1999, and uh, Elmbrook Church down in Brookfield, Wisconsin, was having their annual missions festival. Missions festival. This is the time when they kind of took an entire week to kind of uh, pause and focus on what God was doing uh, all around the world through their supported missionaries. And um, it was a big deal, big event. This is a big church. I mean, Elmbrick Church at this time was about 6,000 people, largest ch- church in the state of Wisconsin. And, and they were going to have this event. And to kind of kick off this whole week, they are going to parade all their missionaries uh, across the platform and kind of then focus in and center in on one family in particular and kind of interview them and kind of hear what God has, was doing through them. And the family that they had chosen to interview for this year's missions festival was uh, us. It's a big deal, big event, all four services, okay? Did I mention it was a big deal? Okay, so. And, um, and so the, the problem is, or was, is that in the run-up to the week of missions festival, the middle school pastor of this very large, very influential church was found out and came to light that he had been abusing some of the boys under his care. And so he subsequently went on the run, on the lamb from the law, and by the time the police caught up to him, he had barricaded himself into a hotel room outside of Baraboo and took his life. The church was in a trauma. Nothing like this had ever happened to them before. Uh, they, were, they were just in shock that something like this could happen to them. They were, they were grieving over the loss of a beloved pastor that they thought they knew. And they felt this intense sense of betrayal inside of them. 
And, uh, and the news reporters were all camped out in the parking lot. They had their vans with their satellite feeds, and they were, uh, you know, doing interviews and stuff like that. It was just a mess. And uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, many people started calling for, um, for the cancellation or at least the postponement of the mission festival. They said, basically, how can we go on with this whole, uh, you know, you know, event that we had planned when we're in such pain and trauma and suffering. And I'll never forget the morning of that Sunday morning that, that we were supposed to be front and center in front of everybody. Stuart Briscoe, the uh, senior pastor at that time, solemnly stepped up onto the page, onto the stage, and he said this. He said, you know, he acknowledged the events of the week and the pain that, that, that they were all collectively in. He said, some of you and some of us have called for the cancellation of the missions festival. But we're not going to do that. And this is why. He said, because I believe that God wants to use the pain and the trauma and the agony and the anguish that we are currently experiencing to drive us into the heart of God and to experience a peace and a side of the heart of God that we may not ever get a chance to experience if things were going well and good in our lives. And that we might be able to resonate with the pain that the world is in, all over the world. The pain that God sees every single day of every single year of his existence. That we might begin to experience a side of God and, and, and an aspect of God that we would never begin to experience if things were going well and good for us. Weep with me. Why talk about things like sorrow and lament and suffering? One of the reasons is because the, the, the whole world is in a lot of pain. If you doubt that in any way, just go on the BBC website and find out what's going on in the world. I mean, the world is in a ton of pain. But you don't have to go to Kashmir or Afghanistan or, you know, uh, Syria or places like that to know that the world is in pain. Just look around. Just look around. We, as a church body, we're carrying around an awful lot of pain. In fact, I, I was sitting in, in the, the, the first week of this series listening to Troy speak. And, um, and, and because I'm a pastor on staff, I know a lot of your stories. And I'm looking at the family next to me. And I know that just in the past six months, he lost his brother to ALS. It's a terrible, crippling disease where you become trapped in your own body. And that next to him was a couple that was sitting together that was currently going through a divorce. And right in front of them was a gal who lost her husband to a heroin overdose. And right next to her was a couple who just had a grandchild born with a severe brain defect. And he was going to be special needs and deaf and blind for his entire life. And they were going to watch their kids go through. We're carrying around an awful lot of pain. Now, we can choose to acknowledge that pain and become deeper people and experience the side of God that we may not ever experience if things were going well. Or we can become more shallow and superficial people and pretend like everything is just going well for us and in our lives. But, uh, but this is why we need a book like Lamentations. Lamentations is like a guide. It's like a curriculum almost that teaching us how to grieve and how to do that appropriately because let's face it, we don't do a very good job of grieving. We don't know how to do that really well. 
So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. You'll find that at page 582 of your Bibles. And as you find that place, I want to kind of give you, remind you of the background of the book of Lamentations. The year is around 586 B.C., 586 years before Jesus came on the scene. And it's about this time that the Babylonian army has laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and the, the nation of Israel in particular. And, uh, and they have completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple, which is the epicenter of worship for all of Israel. And they have taken away a large degree, a large percentage of the population away back into Babylon, Babylon as captives. And all of this was a result of Israel's sin. Okay? This was God's response to generations and generations of systemic institutional sin in the life of the nation of Israel. In fact, week one, we looked at all the verses in chapter one that talk about the sin of Israel and why this is happening to her. It says, the Lord, this is all from chapter one of Lamentations. The Lord has brought the city grief because of her many sins. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, verse 8. My sins have been bound into a yoke, a yoke of slavery. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against His commands. So over and over and over again, Lamentations chapter 1 talks about the sin that, uh, that Israel uh, had committed. And so now they're being taken away into captivity, and they're being punished for their sins. But the hand of the one who is punishing them is none other than God himself, the very God who redeemed them, who called them to himself, who settled them into his land. Now, Babylon might have been the instrument (laughs) of what she was doing. They were like the glove that was causing their chastisement. But the hand inside of the glove was none other than God himself. But what we're going to find today as we read Lamentations chapter to, as we work through the second of five poems of lament in this book, is that God's chastisement or discipline for sin is not punitive in and of itself, okay? But it is purposeful to get us to cry out to Him in desperation and return to Him in dependency, okay? I want to say that again. God's chastisement or discipline for sin is not punitive in and of itself, but it is purposeful to get us to cry out to him in desperation and return to him in dependency. Let's start in verses 1 and 2 of of Lamentations chapter 2. It says, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from, from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool. In the day of his anger. Without pity the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. And in his wrath he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. Now what do you notice, you know, off the bat there as you read those first two verses? Who is the subject in these sentences here? Who's doing the action as we read these verses. The Lord. Yeah. It's the, the Lord is the one who is doing this. It says, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool uh, in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. 
God is the one. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Israelites, is the very one who is doing this before him. Okay, He's the one who's causing all this misery and grief and destruction that they are currently experiencing. Now, they experienced it. They, they uh, deserved it, to be sure. Okay? And in, 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 in Lamentations 2.17, they acknowledged that they had it coming to them. Okay? But this is, this is nothing other than what God has always said that he would do to the nation of Israel if they persisted and insisted in rebelling against him. Okay? Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, before the Israelites ever, ever set foot in the land that God had promised them, promised them, he told them that he would do this. In fact, here in Deuteronomy 28, he says, he says okay, remember, this is, this is re- before they even go into the promised land that God has given them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his, all his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. That's before they knew Babylon even existed. God is saying that he's going to do this. And then he starts talking about everything they're going to do. They're going to devour the young of your livestock, the crops of your land. They'll be destroyed. They'll leave you with no new grain, no wine, no olive oil, no calves. Okay, they're just going to destroy and totally overtake you and do everything. God is saying that he is going to do this even before they go into the land. And now in response and realizing that it is God himself who is causing all this suffering they're experiencing, all this pain they're going through, and that is exactly because of their own sin that, and their rebellion that the, the author here, he just breaks down and he weeps at this realization that must have just hit him like a ton of bricks. As I was having a conversation with Bill in our preparation for our conversation this morning, um, he was telling me about a time when he was in prison, when this realization of all the pain that he had caused and all the hurt and all the trauma just overwhelmed him. And that he was there in prison, in a jail cell, exactly because of everything that he had done. This is the situation that Israel is in, okay? They're being led away into captivity in an orange jumpsuit, and the judge, jury, and, uh, and police officer in their case is none other than God himself. He's the one who is doing this. And it's, it's not good, folks. It's not good. If you turn to verse 4, God is not uh, compared to being a father anymore, but an enemy. Verse 4 says, like an enemy... He has strung his bow. His right hand is steady. Like a foe, he has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. He had poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. So they're saying, you know, this this is how they're experiencing it. God is not their enemy. Again, everything that he does, he does for our good. But what they're experiencing from God at this point, it feels as if God is acting like an enemy. Okay? 
And so in response to his realizations, author properly, fittingly sits in this posture of lament and stays there, pondering its significance, contemplating the reality and the implications of their situation and their condition. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't discount or disregard their suffering. He fully enters into their suffering and allows the full weight to just hit him like an emotional avalanche. And he cries out in verse 11. He says, I am crying so much, I can't even see. See, this is why we need this book, almost like a guide or a tutor to help us learn how to appropriately grieve. Because it's giving us a language and a vocabulary for experience. Because we're so uncomfortable with pain, we don't even know what to do with it sometimes. In fact, we have a label for it. We call it senseless suffering. Senseless suffering. Like as if there is no redemptive sense or purpose to suffering at all. And so it's senseless. But in God's vocabulary, in God's economy, there is no such thing as senseless suffering. Suffering, what God, they're going through, God is there's they're, what they're going through is not in punishment and chastisement in an end to itself, but it is purposeful, right? Getting them to cry out to God in desperation and return to Him in dependency. But this is this is how we look at suffering, and this is what my counselor has told me that the emotional spectrum of, of humanity and, and of human beings is like the sine wave that you saw in trigonometry, right? You guys remember those sine waves, those things you never quite understood, right? And, and you have the things up on the top, you have the high highs and the joys of life that you experience when, when you get married or you have the birth of your first child or something like that. And so there's these extreme joys. But then you have the low lows of life where you, you have the losses in life and the things you need to grieve. And what happens is that, you know, we don't, we don't, especially like how this feels down here, okay? We're like, you know, that classic classic Daffy Duck line where he's like, I'm not like other people. I don't like pain, right? Come on, didn't you guys grow up watching Saturday morning cartoons, you know? Okay? But so we don't, we don't like this. And so what we do is we minimize this. We just, we ignore it. And, and we just kind of plow on and go through it because, you know, we're, we're good Christians, you know? Christians do this better than anybody else. You know, it's like, it's just, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's like all victory all the time. You shouldn't be depressed. You shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't be, experience anything negative. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. You know, you heard that, right? But there's one problem with that. Is that Jesus... When he was here as the perfect human being, he experienced the full emotional spectrum. He not only experienced the high highs and and it is described as being full of joy at times, but he wept at his friend's gravesite. There was he got frustrated with his disciples. There are times where it said that that he said he's his soul was overwhelmed with grief to the point of death. He's like, I am so grieved right now that I feel as if I'm going to die. Jesus was the perfect expression of humanity, and he experienced the full emotional spectrum that humanity can 
experience. And what we tend to do is we get to these negative downside uh, things of life, the hard times of life, and we just kind of want to lop them off. We just want to medicate them away. We want to make them go away. We don't like that how it feels. So we just kind of ignore it. And we're like, I- I'm not going to experience that part. I'm just going to like, la, 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 la. I'm not going to experience that. But what the professionals have found out and what my counselor told me is that when we try to lop off the downsides and the grief and the sorrow and the sadness of life, is we end up, what we end up doing is we end up compressing the entire wave. And we end up becoming less feeling human beings. You can't just lop off the bottom. You just end up compressing the whole thing. And we become kind of less feeling human beings. We live this kind of emotionless, monochromatic, emotionless experience, existence. And this is not... This is not what God intended for us as human beings. He intended for us to know and experience uh, and appreciate the whole of human emotional experience. And so this is why we need to uh, allow ourselves to learn how to lament. Because if we don't allow ourselves to feel the lows, we aren't able to experience the high highs. And we become less feeling human beings. This is why we need to learn to lament, not to ignore the pain in our lives or the pain in our world, which is also why it is actually good and fitting and appropriate to hit the pause button on life, to slow down a little bit and allow ourselves to reflect and even sit in the brokenness of our world and our situation. God wants us to be fully emotional human beings as He is a fully emotional being. And part of that is not to ignore the pain in the world, not to ignore the pain in our own lives or the injustices that we see or the unpleasantries of life, but to face it head on and allow yourself to feel a tiny smidgen of what God feels every single moment of every single day. But there's another reason why we need to lament, and there's a clue that comes at the very end of this poem in verses 18 and 19. In verses 18 and 19, it says this, The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall, the daughter of, daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like river day and night. Give yourself no relief and your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street corner. In a very real sense, what God wanted from Israel is not that they would just be punished for their sins. He took no pleasure in just punishing them and sending them away into, into captivity and the death and destruction that was happening all around them. But he had a purpose for it. And as that is that exactly that they would cry out to him. That they would pour out their hearts like water to him, that they would rely upon him and him alone, that they would return to him and him alone, that they would depend on him for their life and their meaning in in life. Remember, God's purpose in suffering and in grief is not just punitive for Israel in and of itself and for us as well, but it has purpose. And he wants us to return to him in desperation, cry out to him in desperation and return to him in dependency. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. 
It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I would add that what probably God is trying to rouse us to and say to us in our pain is return to me in dependency and cry out to me in desperation. Okay? See, the thing with Israel is that they had gotten so enamored with the gifts that they had forgotten the giver of the gifts. They had become so fixated upon the blessings that God had given to them that they had forgot the one who is the one who blesses. They began to focus so much on the stuff uh, of their life that they didn't find their satisfaction and their contentment in the one who was giving them all that stuff. And God is now systematically stripping them of all the blessings, of all the gifts, of all the stuff, in order to get them to cry out to Him in dependence and return to Him in dependency. God uses our pain and our loss and even the grief in our lives in order to get us to turn us back to Himself, cry out to Him in desperation and return to Him in dependency. Which is one reason... Why followers of Jesus Christ over the centuries have used this season of Lent in leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to intentionally and deliberately deny ourselves of certain things. And so that we would take those inclinations and take those appetites that we're depriving ourselves of and denying ourselves of and instead use them to turn back to God. Because we live in an age where we're not being led away into captivity, right? Is anybody here being led away into captivity at all? You know, we, we're, we comprise 5% of the world's population, yet we are approaching utilizing 50% of the world's resources. We have it the best of anybody. But does God still want us to cry out to Him in dependency and return to Him in desperation? Yes, He does. And so what Christians have done uh, over the centuries is deprive themselves and deny themselves of certain things so that we would turn instead to God. Instead of taking that craving of whatever it is we want and say, instead of, instead of imbibing in that and chocolate or whatever it is or you're going to do, I'm going to instead turn to God because I know that only God is going to satisfy me. Okay? And, and, and we use this as a time of doing some deep soul introspection okay god was systematically and intentionally stripping israel of everything that they had stripping them away of everything so that they would cry out to him in dependency and return to him cry out to him in desperation and return to him in dependency but we can as an act of our will perhaps choose to deny ourselves certain things maybe take a day out of the week and choose to fast a meal and say instead I'm going to use that time to pray and turn to God. This is what God wanted from the people of Israel back in Lamentations. It says, uh, put that last slide up there. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. And they say, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. This is what God wanted Israel to do. And this is what God wants us to do, to pour out our heart like water to him. So, we're into like the third week of Lent, 
But you know what? It's, it's not too late to start if you haven't chosen to give something up, you know. Um, you still have a month left until Easter. Is there anything that you might choose to give up in order to take that craving, take that appetite, and instead turn to the Lord? Maybe uh, instead of going shopping recreationally and engaging in some retail therapy, you know, that instead, you know what, I don't need another shirt. I don't need to just go shopping and hit, get that hit of adre- adrenaline by purchasing something. Instead, I'm just going to stay away from the stores during this season. Maybe you choose, you know, instead, I'm just going to fast from television. And instead of going to, to television to numb myself and numb my world of whatever it is that I'm going through, I'm just going to instead turn that time into a time of prayer and focus on the fact that God is my soul satisfaction. Maybe you, want, maybe you just want to observe a, a fast from social media. That might be the best thing that some of us could do. And realize that if we don't go on Facebook or, or MySpace or whatever, I don't know, MySpace, you're like, what, are you in the 90s, Mike? I don't know. I'm not on social media, so this isn't a thing for me. But it's like, you know, you're not going to disappear if you don't go on social media. And, uh, and instead of seeking the approval from your friends out there in the Internet, maybe instead I say, I'm going to seek the approval of the one who sees everything that I do. I do. God himself. I don't know what it is. But is there something you may want to choose to deprive yourself of, strip yourself of, so that you would cry out to God in dependency, or in desperation, and return to him Independency. We're going to enter into a time of communion where we take the Lord's Supper together and remember His death and the bread and the cup. And when we do that, I want us to consider how Jesus denied Himself and deprived Himself of so much to step into our world and enter into our story and felt and experienced the full weight of the pain and the grief and the agony that our world had to dish out upon Him. And that the wrath of God against all of our sin was placed on him. See, Israel was experiencing the wrath of God. There's no doubt about that. But the scripture is very clear. Is that on the cross where Jesus died, the full wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus. Not so that we would experience God as an enemy, but that we could be made friends with God. Let me pray. The, uh, the worship team is going to lead us in some, some music, and we're going to put some reflection questions up there. What I want you to do is just take some time to read those questions, do some kind of spade work of the soul this morning. Ask yourself these questions and, and contemplate uh, maybe how you might respond to some of them. And, and then once you've had a chance to, to, to think through those and pray, I'm going to invite you to go up to one of the tables over here, take the bread, take the cup, and uh, bring them back to your seats. When everyone is served, we'll all take them together. Let me pray. Father God, um, we have it so good. None of us is being led away into captivity. We're not being stripped of all that we own and have. But nonetheless... You still want us to cry out to you in desperation and to return to you in dependency. 
Lord, we pray that during this season of Lent, as we march towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you would use this time in our lives to help us to do just that. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we pray that you'd meet us in a powerful and profound way, reminding us that you are a God who feels and experiences the full emotional spectrum. And you invite us in to do the same. Pray this in Jesus' name.